to take your Bibles and turn with me to that passage we read. Coming towards the end of chapter 11, going into chapter 12 of John's Gospel. We've begun uh, a, a new section, really, in this Gospel, a section that I have entitled The Passover Plot, using the word plot, of course, in its twofold sense of an evil conspiracy on the one hand and as a dramatic storyline on the other. And as John's Gospel moves forward towards its climax, we find both of those plots in both of those senses going in parallel lines and moving closer together. The schemes of men, if you will, on the one hand, and the purposes of God on the other. It's the Passover plot because John underlines the fact that we are heading inevitably and without deviation towards this final Passover. The Passover was signaled back in the beginning of John's Gospel. We need to have some of this in our mind as we come to this section At the beginning of John's Gospel, you'll remember twice Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you read John's Gospel in one sitting, then you'd have that in your head. We've been taking 49 sittings, and uh, we're at this section now. So I'm reminding you of of that past. And as we come to the Passover, that's what all of that was about at the beginning. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is approaching the Passover period. When all the other little lambs are going to be killed, the really significant lamb that will be killed this year is the Lamb of God who will bear away the sin of the world. So we're told in chapter 11 verse 55 that the Passover was at hand. We are told in chapter 12, verse 1, six days before Passover, Jesus was doing something. So that's very much in the forefront of the story. It's the time of year, not just when little lambs are playing in the fields, springtime. It's the time of year for the sacrificing of the lambs. It's the time when Jesus himself will be sacrificed for the sins of his people. And once again, not only are we told about the uh, Passover period, but we're reminded of this event, which in John's Gospel is absolutely crucial. It is the turning point of John's Gospel. This event in which Jesus raises Lazarus in a village only two miles from the capital city. Jesus has raised Lazarus. It's got all kinds of attention from the people. People are going to him and... They are following Jesus, and already we noticed, uh, or let me remind you that we noticed that the plot that emerges in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees, told them, and the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in their council together and said, what are we going to do? And Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, came up with the classic suggestion. We know this is a destabilizing act. We know this is going to endanger the peace of the nation. And if we're going to, if we're going to save the nation, if we're going to save the church, Israel is the church at that point, you remember. 
If we're going to save the church, one man must die for the people. And Jesus is that man. So they're plotting. They're driven, by the way, by politics. You notice, not by principle. He is an embarrassment to them. He is a threat to them. They see he is destabilizing things. And so they decide that they're going to get rid of Jesus. Well, that's the background then to chapter 12, where the scene is back in Bethany. And a major banquet is being thrown by the family. And you can understand why the banquet is being thrown, because Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, has been resuscitated. He's been brought back to life. There's been a resurrection. And as we come to this lovely picture that is painted here, which we could very easily get all sentimental about, but there's more to it than meets the eye. But as we come to this lovely picture, here is Jesus, and he's among his own friends there. And there is the risen Lazarus sitting hearty and well, eating his foie gras and drinking his wine as a starter for this great feast. Never had his disciples seen Jesus in his glory to such a degree as they saw him that night, up to this point. Never had they seen him in the splendor of his ability and the majesty of his power They're replaying in their minds, like the the replays from a football game as you go back to the the action of that that goal and and it goes over and over and over and over again. They were replaying in their minds that that moment when he's standing outside of Lazarus' tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the terror that gripped them as Emerging from the tomb, Lazarus came all wrapped up in bandages like some weird thing from a popular movie today. And Jesus says, untie him, release him, take the bandages off and let him go. And there he was, perfectly healthy and well, and wondering why they'd wrapped him up in bandages. And it was a miracle. It was an astounding miracle. Everybody is talking about it, all of Jerusalem is talking about it. Uh, we, we see that in the, in the passage we read from verse 55. Everybody is talking now about Jesus. He is the center of conversation. There's a buzz going around Jerusalem as people going up for the Passover and they're looking around and they're looking for Jesus. They want to see he's the star. He's the mega celebrity for what has happened. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Everybody is talking about this. And the authorities have put a wanted notice out for him. They want to know where he is. They have charged everybody. If anybody knows where Jesus is, they should tell him. And as it were, under their own eyes, under their own gaze, Jesus is two miles away in a house in Bethany with Lazarus and Martha and Mary and others. Now, it's against that context that Mary, who's described as Mary, who anointed Jesus, comes onto the scene and performs this act 
of anointing. I want you to notice, first of all, the extravagance of the anointing. Mary, therefore we read, took a pound of of expensive oil, probably, ointment in our translation, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, back in chapter 11, verse 2, this is the Mary who is identified from all time. This is the Mary who is identified in this way, who anointed the Lord with oil. Her action left an impression For it was both sensational and unconventional. After all, a woman would not do that in that society, but do it she did. And she did it with a premeditation. She came prepared for this moment. She had bought a pound of nard oil from the exotic nard plant that grew only in North India and was imported as a luxury item. It would have cost a year's wages to buy this. This was an extravagant, extravagant gesture. And John emphasizes the costly devotion of this woman to Jesus. Now, you, you must picture the scene. Each of the guests resting on a couch, leaning on their left arm so that their right arm is free to eat the food, their feet away from the table, And Mary going around the outside till she comes to Jesus. Mark tells us that she started by anointing Jesus' head. Mark says this, that while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, by the way, Simon was no longer a leper. He'd been cured, but he hadn't got rid of the title. He was still called Simon the leper. I guess they wanted to identify him, and he was the one who was a leper. But there there he is, he's... Got his own house now and he's having this party and Mary and Martha are, probably was a bigger house and Mary and Martha are serving or Martha's serving. And as he's reclining at table, Mark says a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now what we get when we read the three Gospels record of this event is this. We, we, we get the sense that, Jesus, that Mary comes to Jesus first and anoints his head. And then out of modesty perhaps, out of humility, he, she moves away from Jesus' head to his feet, moving away from the table, and pours the bulk of the expensive oil on his feet. John tells us that she, and I'm giving you the sense of what John says here, she even anointed his feet. In other words, the language of John perhaps assumes that she anointed his head, but John wants to emphasize that she even anointed the feet of Jesus. Compelled by love and devotion to her master, And as the oil flows, filling the whole earth with its striking perfume, she then unlooses her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair to protect him from any annoyance that her act of adoration might cause him. So here is Jesus. He is no doubt the center of attention. 
People are looking at Lazarus, they're looking at Jesus, they're looking at Lazarus, they're looking at Jesus, they're thinking Lazarus wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. And there is Jesus in the center of his people, in the greatest display of his glory thus far. And Mary's extravagant devotion then takes center stage. Now in many ways you can understand her extravagant devotion. She is simply responding, I think, in faith and love to his presence among them. There, there are times, you know, in life where words aren't enough to express what you're really feeling. There are times when words escape you, when, when the, the ability to articulate the deep emotion of your heart is so great that if you try to say what you're really feeling, you, you would be stuck for words. Have you ever been in that position? And Mary is doing something because, in a sense, doing this was easier than saying what she felt. But the costliness of what she did tells you what she would have said. It is, it is demonstrating what she would have liked to declare about the Lord Jesus. Now, earlier in John's Gospel, John the Baptist a different John than the one who writes the gospel, had declared that he was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandal strap. A rabbi's disciple was essentially a servant to his teacher, but he was never required to attend to his master's feet because in that society, one's feet were nearest the earth. They were the kind of lowest part of your anatomy, they were almost, they were also regarded as a bit disgusting. They didn't have nice brogues like I've got on tonight. It was bare feet. You walked around in bare feet or open thong sandals. And so, you know, you just need your imagination for a second. Sweat and dust. And there's the scenario. The feet were not regarded very highly. And so even the lowliest servant wouldn't be asked to wash the feet or deal with the feet of a guest. Usually a foreign servant might be asked to wash the feet. But it was very unusual even for that to happen. So she is doing, she is doing something which a disciple wouldn't do. She is doing something which even John the Baptist who says he's lower than even a disciple that he wouldn't do. She is doing something even a foreign servant might have to be compelled to do. She is taking upon herself the task of anointing Jesus. And in doing so, what is she saying? She is expressing the love she had for the Lord Jesus. And I suppose we have to ask ourselves the question tonight, do we love the Lord Jesus? People ask me sometimes, you know, they, they ask, when I, became, when I became a Christian, when did you first trust in the Lord Jesus? And I have to say to them that I cannot remember a time when I didn't love the Lord Jesus. My parents brought me up to love the Lord Jesus, to believe him, yes, to believe in him, yes, but to love him. And I suppose in life when there are things that we do that are disobedient, when there are areas of our life that are inconsistent, it's that love for Jesus that really is the great driver to go back to him and to reestablish your relationship with him. 
As the hymn writer put it, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. But I do love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. And if you're here tonight and you love the Lord Jesus, I imagine that prayer is your prayer. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Well, there's the extravagance of the anointing. Secondly, I want you to notice the offense of the anointing. Mary's action provoked a reaction. This is what Mark tells us in his account. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. That's Mark's account. So we're to visualize every eye moving in her direction, following her as she anoints Jesus' head, as she moves down to anoint Jesus' feet, then does that disreputable thing for a woman in polite society, lets her hair down, loose, and uses her hair to dry his feet. You can see the disapproving scowls. But John focuses in on one particular disapproving scowl. Judas becomes the spokesman for the rest. But Judas Iscariot, and by the way, chronologically, this is the first time you hear from Judas Iscariot in the Bible. For uh, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and here's how Judas is always remembered by the early Christians. He who was about to betray Jesus said... Quote, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now this very mention of Judas is an indication that the end is in sight for Jesus. The contrast between Jesus and, or Judas rather, and Mary could not be greater. One is going to betray Jesus. The other is prepared to be called a fool, to suffer embarrassment and criticism in order to show Jesus her gratitude and affection. And you listen to Judas. Judas is typical, by the way, of people you find in church because Judas is among the church. He is one of Jesus' followers. He's part and parcel of this apostolic band. He's been with Jesus all these years. He's been an eyewitness and ear witness to what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And when he sees this act of devotion, there are always people in church who will respond the way Judas did. And I want you to notice how Judas's rationale sounds so spiritual and so pious. Scoundrels resort to pious and spiritual talk to cover their own spiritual inadequacy. Very often, not always, but very often. And you see what his argument is. What are you doing wasting all this money? I mean, really and truly, isn't it? Don't you have a sense of proportion here? Consider the, a whole year's wage. I mean, here we are. Aren't we supposed to be concerned for the poor? Couldn't we have taken that money and used it more effectively for the kingdom and for the betterment of other people? Isn't it incumbent on Jesus' people to take the needs of pe poor people seriously? Mary's devotion caused offense all round, but especially to Judas. And while others had their own reasons for being annoyed about it, 
this text tells us something of Judas's motives. Did you notice that? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That was really what was going on here. What Judas saw was a lost opportunity to add significantly to the group's resources and provide more opportunity for him to pilfer unnoticed. He spoke out of a concern for the poor. No, no. He spoke out of the regret of a thief who saw this large sum of money lost to his purse from which he regularly enriched himself. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? He was in the company of Jesus. He had been with Jesus. He had had fellowship with Jesus. He sat under the teaching of Jesus. He professed to be a disciple of Jesus, and he didn't know Jesus at all. He didn't know Jesus at all. You can be in church tonight and not know Jesus at all. You could be singing the hymns, saying the confession, nodding your head with the prayers, even agreeing with parts of the sermon and not know Jesus. Isn't that a tragic thing? You need to ask yourself that question tonight. Do I know? Do I know him? Do I love him as Mary loved him? You see, this man Judas was an unconverted man. And underlying it all was Judas's unwillingness to believe that Jesus was worth such immoderate and unrestrained devotion. In fact, Mark tells us in his account that Judas went straight from this feast to the authorities and made his deal to betray Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to read it to you from Mark. Then... After the feast, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. There's the story. That's where it's going. That's what Judas is going to go out and do. And he takes the opportunity to attack this woman for her obvious devotion to the Lord Jesus. But I want you to notice Jesus' response here. He defends her, doesn't he? He rebukes Judas. He defends Mary. Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I think that that word of rebuke To Judas, that word of Jesus confirmed him in his heart's distance from the Lord. I think it solidified the growing conclusion that Jesus wasn't going to be the Messiah he wanted. Do you know that the word of God, the very same word of God that saves one person condemns another do you know the very same word that feeds your soul and comforts your heart can at one and the same time solidify someone in their determination to reject jesus 
It is a distinguishing word. It is always a distinguishing word. It's always separating, always dividing, always having this effect. Jesus comes by his word to bring a sword amongst us. I'm very conscious of this. That the word of God comes as a sword and distinguishes between true and false faith. Between real believers and, and not real believers, synthetic believers. Between those who know the Lord Jesus and those who think they know the Lord Jesus. Between those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. Between the sheep and the goats. That's the way it works. Mary, on the the other hand, is defended by Jesus because she had realized that time was short. She had bought it, I think, for his burial, which meant she had an insight into where things were going. You say, how did she get it and the disciples didn't get it? Well, obviously her eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit to see it. We know about Mary this, that Mary took every opportunity she could get to sit under the teaching of Jesus. She took every opportunity she had, even in private conversation, to get Jesus to teach her stuff. And she had listened to Jesus and believed him. And somehow or other, Mary had got it in her head. She'd got it that Jesus had to die. And Jesus is noticing that he had, she had bought it for his burial. But she had used it now. Why had she used it now? There may be a number of reasons for this. It may very well have been in a sense to make it clear that he was going to death and burial as the anointed, the anointed son of God. The anointed king of Israel. We need to deal with this little verse before we move on. That little verse where Jesus says, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He's not being callous there about the poor. He's not saying the poor can be ignored, but he is saying this, that under normal circumstances, care for the poor is the right thing. But these are not normal circumstances, he's saying. You will not have the Son of God this time next week under these circumstances. This is a unique moment. This is an opportunity to serve him in a tangible way and it would not last long. And she had seized the day to demonstrate her love. R.C. Sproul, in one of his books, tells of a friend of his who served in the ghetto in uh, inner city Cleveland, in Ohio, among the addicted, the poor, and the oppressed. And this man was there for many, many years, decades But his assistant ministers who came to help him in that work never seemed to last very long. They would last perhaps two years and then off they would go. And when he was asked why it was that these men didn't last, his answer was simply this. These men came with hearts of compassion. They came with very high ideals, great motivation. They wanted to serve. They wanted to make a difference. But they came and they worked and they served. And they left depressed and disillusioned. Because nothing changed. Some people's lives were changed. But the poor were replaced by other poor. And the addicted were replaced by other addicted. There was no end to it. It went on and on and on. And this particular man who stuck it out explained. 
that he was able to stay precisely because he believed these words of Jesus. The poor you will always have with you. You have to work. You have to serve. You have to do what you can. You have to make a difference. But that will always keep on going. So it's the way it is. So he says, my mission is not to get rid of the poor or these problems, this man said. My mission is to minister to those who are suffering and help them while I'm here. And that was Mary's reasoning. She thought, I've saved this for Jesus' burial, but I'm going to give him this gift while he's alive and can enjoy it. I can minister to the poor after that. Anybody can help me do that after that day. But right now, this is the moment. And the, the anointing caused offense. Thirdly, I want you to notice the significance of the anointing. And the significance of the anointing lies in what Mary does and what Jesus says. In what Mary does, what happened? Let's look at it again. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served as Martha did. uh, Generously giving of her energy, her time, her thought, her work in the kitchen in order to serve people. That was the way Martha showed her love. She's never rebuked for doing that, by the way. She's only rebuked for making too much. One thing is necessary. You made a bowl of soup, you don't have to go and make, you know, cook steaks. One thing's okay. Martha, Jesus had said to her. Martha was one who demonstrated her love by doing. Mary was more passive, more thoughtful. But on this occasion, Mary is the active one. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed, there's our key word, anointed, the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, you need to see it again in the wider scope of the passage. There was a lot of excitement going around. That's why the the presence of Lazarus at this meal is highlighted. I've already pointed out the fact that there are different accounts of this story. In Mark and Matthew, for example, none of the characters are named. Now, Mark and Matthew are written very early on. The characters are still alive. Lazarus is still alive, for example. And Mary and Martha are still alive. And uh, Mark and Matthew don't name the characters, but they are the ones who mention the anointing on the head. That was very significant. The king was anointed on the head, and that would have been seen as some kind of Hostility against the Roman state, the anointing of another king. And so modern scholarship revisiting this big question of why the differences between Matthew, Mark, and John here have come to the conclusion that the author is engaging in protective anonymity. That the earlier accounts, while the characters are still around, don't mention their names to protect them. John is writing much later, Mary may still be alive, but John in his account mentions the anointing of the feet rather than the head, again out of a protective reason to protect the person involved. Lazarus may well have died and gone to heaven by John's time. Then you can see this illustrated, I think, in the presence of Lazarus here. Lazarus isn't mentioned in the earlier stories 
John mentions him but explains why Lazarus was in danger. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. We read that. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Mark, writing closer to the events, where there's still a lot of anger over the new movement, is wise enough to keep the name of Lazarus out of his account. Now, the same principle applies when we consider the actions of Mary. The Messiah is going to die. Mary, in a gesture rich with prophetic symbolism, she is acting here actually like a prophet, meets the need of the moment by anointing Jesus for his burial. The very use of that word anointing, repeated over and over again, reminds you of the anointing that Samuel performed on David. Mary is acting as a prophetess. She is doing what the prophets of Israel very often did, a kind of acted out prophecy. She is prophesying the burial of Jesus. And she is demonstrating that by her action. It is loaded with this significance. Mary takes time to pour the anointing oil on Jesus, the Messiah King of Israel. That's what she's doing here. And it flows, do you notice, it flows, it flows immediately into the next day. The large crowd that had come to the feast is waiting. Jesus rides in and what do they say? Behold, your king is coming. In other words, in the flow of John's gospel, that public anointing of Mary is Jesus' official anointing as king. And the next day he rides into the city in the most public display he has done yet of his kingship. He's avoided that idea, avoided any of the traps involved in that idea up to this point. But that anointing changes everything. Now in the politically unstable situation, where there were perhaps as many as a million visitors to Jerusalem for the Passover. You can imagine the Roman state being nervous of potential uprisings. And at the time Mark wrote, this woman Mary would still have been in danger as having been complicit in Jesus' politically subversive claim to be the messianic king. But I think Professor Bockham is right when he says, this woman is acknowledging, even designating Jesus as Messiah ben David, the king of Israel. Well, what Jesus says confirms that view. Jesus immediately confirms the messianic significance of what she's done and immediately interprets it according to his own understanding of what being the Messiah entailed. He both accepts her anointing and he explains its significance. He is the Messiah, but he is going to die. And so he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And there you have that other plot. You see, Jesus is now making a note of that other plot, that storyline, which he has been impressing on his disciples that he had come to die. Mary got that. She had grasped that. She knew he was about to die. And Jesus is telling his disciples this 
He's been telling them for a long time, but Mary is presented as someone often at Jesus' feet who had got the message, understood where others hadn't, because she was in Jesus' wavelength. He'd opened her eyes to see and her heart to grasp it. And she broke open her box of nard and anointed him. Now, some of us struggle with Christian truth. Some of us struggle with spiritual understanding. And we struggle with it because we don't do what Mary did. We struggle with it because we fail to do what Mary did in her life. We don't often keep company with the Lord Jesus. We're not often in the Word of God listening to Jesus. We are erratic in our use of the means of grace. We don't come to church and and hear the Word of God expounded to us. We don't read the Bible for ourselves. We don't keep company with Jesus. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a young boy. He found himself riding in a train with a well-known Bible teacher en route to a some meetings where the preacher was going to speak. The teacher was reading his Bible. The boy was reading the newspaper. The boy Barnhouse glanced over to the teacher and complimented him by saying, I I, I wish I knew the Bible as well as you do. The Bible teacher replied to him, Son, you'll never get to know the Bible by reading the newspaper. Barnhouse learned the lesson of that. There's nothing wrong with reading the newspaper, but he put the newspaper away and he started to read the Bible for himself. And as he read the Bible, he found himself communing with the Lord Jesus. That's what Martha, what Mary did. She listened to Jesus. She sat at his feet. She drank in his word. She got to know him. The more she got to know him, the more she got to love him. Now you must see as you read this, Mary is a prophet in a sense. She performs a prophetic sign of Jesus's destiny. He was not going to be the Messiah the Jews wanted. There can be no doubting what Jesus had in mind at this point. In fact, the controlling verse for this entire section of John's gospel is in John chapter 13 and verse 1. I'll read it to you. Now, before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew, that's what's in his mind, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When Jesus talks about the day of his burial, he's indicating the point of no return. This is to be the defining moment in Jesus' life. It marks the uniqueness of the Christian movement. The death of Jesus is going to be the controlling factor of the church's faith. That's why John focuses on the anointing of the feet. It was the appropriate preparation for death. This defines the kind of Messiah Jesus had come to be. His burial is essential to the gospel. Do you know in Paul's writings, he refers to what we technically call proto-creeds, that is, creeds or statements of faith that came from before Paul was writing and which were well known among Christian people. He, He quotes them. For example, we find one of these in 1 Corinthians 15. 
where Paul says this, I declare to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. When Paul became a Christian, that's what he was taught. Those were the basic elements of the first creed that Paul was taught. And he's passing them on to these Corinthians. Jesus had to die and be buried. Crucified, dead, buried. That's the fundamental aspect of the Christian life. And Judas' involvement at the meal, his reaction was an added significance here. He goes immediately, Mark tells us, to the high priest, conspires with them to hand Jesus over to the authorities. No doubt, no doubt, Judas would have said to the authorities, and by the way, do you know, somebody has just anointed him. Do you get the significance of that? Do you get the political significance of that? Jesus now believes himself to be the anointed king of Israel. Shock horror. Driving up the paranoia levels among this little clique, this little elite that were running the show. As they begin to think, is he planning a messianic uprising? We know where that leads. And they would have regarded this incident as the overt confirmation by Jesus that he will undertake the messianic role. And afraid that he might make a grab for political and military victory, they side with Judas. And uh, they give him 30 pieces of silver. A lot less than that nard cost for betraying Jesus. So what's the point of this story? Well, one of the points of this story is this. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Who do you identify with here? With Judas or with Mary? Are you rejecting Jesus as not the Messiah or Savior you want? Or are you giving him your devotion, your heart's devotion to him? Mary gave up for Jesus something that cost two and a half times the amount Judas took to betray Jesus. In the end you lose If you lose Jesus, you've lost everything. But if you gain Jesus, you have more worth than tongue can tell. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this evening, we, your people, Lord, here, would have our hearts opened that our devotion would be poured out to him who deserves it, and that we would lavish our love, our heart's affections on the Lord Jesus Christ. For his glory's sake. Amen.